Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Toby Young. Toby is the General Secretary of the Free Speech Union. He's also editor-in-chief of The Daily Skeptic and associate editor at The Spectator. Toby. Andrew. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Free Speech Union, let's start with that. It's been a huge success. And when, it, when, you, when you set it up, there was a lot of, well, scepticism about the Free Speech Union, about the need for it. And, and there were lots of unfair attacks, I felt, uh, in, in the press. But you've been vindicated quite clearly. Yeah, well, when we launched it, which was in February 2020, um, The Guardian, I think, ran a hit piece about the Free Speech Union and me every day on consecutive days for um, uh, eight days. Um, and, and the kind of, as you say, the, 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 the kind of the arguments were twofold. The first was the free speech crisis is a figment of, you know, left of, 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 of um, Telegraph readers' imagination. Mm. And the second argument was um, this is an excuse. What Toby's looking for is, is, is an excuse to um, spout kind of right wing gibberish, racist misinformation and so forth. Yes. Those were the kind of two arguments. It'll just be that it'll just it'll just protect kind of right wing loons who really shouldn't be in the public square in the first place. Um, and yeah, I think it's safe to say that um, certainly the first of those arguments um, uh, was was wrong. Um, the free speech crisis has only deepened um, uh, since we set up the free speech union. Um, there was a kind of twofold um, thing that happened almost immediately afterwards. First of all, there was the, the, the pandemic and then the lockdowns. And it was very difficult to um, uh, question the wisdom of the lockdown policy in the mainstream media. When I tried to do it, I was immediately pounced on on Twitter. Um, uh, it was it was quite hard to set out that. I mean, not on GB News, but in, in most other places, it was very difficult to articulate any kind of um, reasonable opposition to the lockdown policy. And lots of people ended up getting cancelled for doing so, particularly scientists. One of the kind of really sinister things, I think, about the last two years is that cancel culture has crept into medicine and the hard sciences. So we've, you know, even at the Free Speech Union, we've looked after lots of um, scientists um, who found themselves in difficulty for kind of dissenting from the kind of uh, uh, the, the, the kind of um, mainstream narrative. And then there was the Black Lives Matter um, imbroglio as well. Um, uh, uh, suddenly, what had been quite a fringe narrative about um, America being an institutionally racist society, about the police being a kind of white supremacist militia who set about kind of embarking on genocide of the African-American population, um, uh, accompanied by a kind of hostility to the nuclear family and to capitalism more widely, a kind of, you know, identity politics fueled fringe Marxism suddenly became super mainstream overnight with the death of George Floyd, with, you know, Sky Sports um, having a BLM symbol um, in the corner of the screen, um, Twitter um, putting it on their homepage, Google putting it on there. And it was extraordinary, you know, this kind of uh, this fairly intolerant, quite authoritarian, hard left kind of neo-Marxist agenda was suddenly embraced by the entire corporate world. By capitalists. And, uh, by, by capitalists, yeah, <laughs> by rich radicals. Um, and, um, uh, and that meant that lots of people who challenged that agenda, even, you know, um, uh, in the mildest kind of way, in good faith, not with a view to being provocative, um, uh, suddenly found themselves in all sorts of difficulties. So, you know, and that, that, that proved to be kind of a huge amount of work, a rich seam for the free speech union. So, and in the universities, of course, the free speech crisis has deepened and got much worse. So um, the idea that it was a malady 
imaginaire. That turned out to be, you know, completely wrong. On the have we just do we just exist to defend kind of, you know, white middle age kind of you kippers? Um, uh, no, I don't think we do. I mean, uh, uh, it's surprising when you go to our, our in-person events, which we've now started to organise um, now that we can. Um, uh, how many of the people aren't, you know, um, middle aged kind of uh, uh, right wing kind of heteronormative males? Yes. Um, it's a pretty broad, diverse audience. But. I think the, the real thing that's given the lie to that claim that it just exists to, to defend male, pale and stale Tories like me is the number of gender critical feminists we've had to come to the defence of. I mean, you know, they've just been abandoned by, you know, the progressive tribe for the most part, um, certainly by The Guardian, certainly by the UCU, the main academic uh, trade union, um, within institutions, law firms. I mean, we see everywhere people who exp express gender critical views uh, you know, find themselves being targeted by outrage mobs. And, um, and for the most part, they are, you know, almost without exception, left wing. Um, uh, one of the first people we came to the defence of was um, Selina Todd, um, professor of modern history at Oxford, who got deplatformed from a conference celebrating 50 years of feminism, which she herself helped organise because some of the participants um, were kind of trans rights activists and didn't want to share a platform with her because, you know, being a gender critical feminist is apparently like having COVID. And if you stand next to one, you can catch it. Yeah. Um, and so they didn't want to risk catching it by appearing on the same platform as her. Uh, and, and, and we went to bat for her, almost one of the first things we did. And since then, it's just completely snowballed. So it's quite hard to maintain the kind of smear that we just exist to defend right wing men when, you know, I think now a majority of the people we help on a kind of daily basis are are left-wing gender-critical feminists. Yeah, I mean, I even heard some feminists at the time of the formation of the Free Speech Union expressing scepticism about it, saying they wouldn't go near it. That's really changed. I think they've realised that this is, you know, like you say, they are, uh, to a person, left-wing, old-school socialists, a lot of them. Yeah. And they've realised that they are the one, you know, free speech is for everyone. It, it doesn't yeah, matter. I, I think, it, I think it, without wanting to be in any way critical of um, the gender-critical feminist community, who, mm -hmm. my God... Have you know They've been um, through it? Been through it. Yeah. Um, uh, I think some of them have been red pilled by the experience of being cancelled themselves. Yes, and they've come around to um, uh, to being more passionate defenders of the principle of free speech and yeah. not just their right to speak. Well, it's, it's almost as though you were just a, a bit too early. I mean, I found when I set up my comedy unleashed night, and we were saying, you know, this is a space where comics don't have to worry about audience members getting offended and complaining, and then you getting in trouble. That wouldn't happen. And people said, there's no need for a club. Like this. There's no need. But very few people say that now and and, yeah. and more and more comics have co contact me and say can i get a spot because i want to say stuff that i can't at other clubs so it almost yeah. like you eventually get there and people realize yeah and i think it's says, increasingly because it's not just because more and more conservatives or even gender critical feminists um, are being cancelled it's because there is this kind of constant um turning in um uh, of itself mm. on um uh, uh, amongst the kind of identitarian left you know they're engaged, locked in this kind of purity spiral. And every week someone finds themselves, you know, suddenly excommunicated. Now they're an apostate. And, you know, the viciousness with oh, which the tribe they? turns on these kind of outcasts is, is really, it's, it's much, it's, you know, I, I thought I've had it bad in the past. But my God, you know, if, if, if you're actually one of them. Yeah. And and they've decided that, you know, you've said you've stepped out of line in some way or that the tide has shifted and you're left standing on a rock that's no longer in a defensible position. You know, the viciousness with which they're attacked is something to behold. Well, I've, I've seen even the uh, even this week, uh, Owen Jones 
being attacked by the trans activists because he, because he's uh, trying to make a case that the word genocide means something and shouldn't be just applied to gender critical feminists, you know, and they're really going for him now at the moment. So it just goes to show you're never really safe from the from absolutely. The, from the well, there's, there's there's you know there's that old was it a, pr- a proverb about how you know if you stand for long enough by the side of the riverbank you'll see the kind of bodies of your enemies floating past um i may have got that wrong but <laughs> but but, but uh, uh, my my dream is that all the people in the guardian that attacked the free speech union with such vehemence two years ago yes. will eventually come to us for help but i'm sure you know owen's going to reach out to us any day i mean there would be a a sense of schadenfreude about that but it's but it's more than that isn't it, it it's important that people realize that this is a serious threat and that it could potentially impact absolutely anyone. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask you about your uh, experience of cancel culture insofar as you were the uh, centre of a real storm relating to Twitter a number of years ago. Uh, Do you want to just explain to us what happened there? So at the beginning of 2018, I was appointed as a non-executive director, one of 15, to the Office for Students, which uh, which was a new body then, which had been created to regulate English universities. Um, And... um, uh, for some reason, the Department for Education released this information at sort of one minute after midnight on New Year's Day 2018. Um, and um, I think it was just because it was embargoed until then. But as far as The Guardian was concerned, they tried to sneak out this news because they were embarrassed by it. So The Guardian weren't going to let them get away with that. So, you know, front page of The Guardian's website at like 12.02 yes. on um, uh, the 1st of January 2018. It's uh, yeah, Toby Young to be Theresa May's new university czar. You know, it was a ludicrous kind of um, uh, a promotion. You know, it wasn't going to be her university czar. It was one of, you know, 15 non-exec. Anyway, um, and, and then the kind of pylon began, you know. Why is this guy, you know, he, why is he remotely suitable to regulate? You know, what does he know about universities? What are his credentials to do this job? Uh, look at all these ghastly things he's said in the past. And, you know, the offence archaeologist kind of quickly kind of went to work um, and started trawling through everything I'd written. And you said you had your, all your old tweets were still up. It, they, were, they were all up. Yeah. And um, uh, the spect- everything I'd written for The Spectator, I've been a columnist for The Spectator for over you know 20 years, were all in The Spectator archive. At one point, Fraser Nelson said that the 10 most searched for pieces in the Spectator archive, which dates back to, I think, 1828, were all by me because it was all the events archaeologists trying to find reasons that I wasn't a suitable person to carry out this august role. Um, And uh, of course, you know, being a kind of provocative journalist and having done this for, you know, over 35 years, it didn't take them long to, you know, to find a kind of cornucopia. It was like Tutankhamun's tomb, you know, yeah. as far as the offence archaeologists were concerned. Um, and, uh, and, and, um, and I, I thought this, this is a storm in a teacup, you know, it, it'll all be over within 24 hours, maybe 48 hours at the most, and then they'll move on and start attacking somebody else. But it was a slow news week. It was the beginning of the year. Not much happens at the beginning of the year. Journalists are always kind of strapped for something to write about, so it became a much bigger story than it should have done, and uh, and it sort of it sort of um, uh, seeped over from social media into the mainstream media, and uh, you know um, a petition was started urging Theresa May to fire me. Got over two hundred and twenty thousand signatures. A mob of journalists formed up outside my house. My daughter stopped going to school. My wife had to kind of run the gauntlet every time she went shopping, um, and um, and uh, and then members of the um, 
uh, the other non-executive directors started to threaten to resign unless I resigned. And initially, kind of Downing Street were quite supportive, but then, you know, shock, um, (laughs) their backbones um, started turning to jelly. Um, So I thought after about eight days of being kind of in the spotlight with kind of every awful thing I'd said or written being dredged up and kind of thrown at me uh, that I would just stand down and draw a line under it. And and rather stupidly, I issued an apology for kind of the so- more sophomoric things I'd said in the past. Yeah. They were mainly kind of just bad jokes. And um, uh, but it didn't draw a line under it at all. It, it turned out that that was like throwing a piece of raw meat to a shoal of piranha fish. And suddenly the feeding frenzy reached kind of fever pitch. And I had to step down in the end from four additional positions. So I I lost five jobs in total, including, you know, my day job, which, you know, that was how I paid the mortgage. Um, uh, so that was that was it was quite shocking to be so thoroughly cancelled in kind of almost every area of my life. Not the spectator. Mm. Fraser Nelson, God bless him, stood by me and, and didn't didn't fire me. I mean, I never thought he would. Um, but um, it was it was a brutal um, experience, you know, being publicly shamed. There's something kind of, it, it kind of, it it, 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 kind of really kind of touches you at your core. There's something kind of, you feel so exposed as though you're kind of in the public square, in the stocks, people are throwing stuff at you. Being, being kind of ostracized like that is, is, is a kind of brutal experience. And however tough you think you are psychologically, it's kind of quite hard to withstand. I lost, you know, I think I lost about one and a half stone over the course. I called it the public humiliation diet. Um, and, but it was brutal. And, and other people who've been through it, you know, have suffered far more than me. And there've been a, a string of suicides in connection with people who've been cancelled. Um, for the most part, my friends stood by me. Um, Louis C.K. has this gag because, of course, he got cancelled too, which is that they tell you when something like this happens, you find out who your real friends are. And that's true. But it's the wrong half, he said. But in my case, it wasn't the wrong half. It was yeah, it was most of them. Uh, so that was good. And um, and as a journalist, I was able to continue to earn a living, um, even though I had to give up all these other jobs. And I wasn't it, it, the, the trigger for my cancellation wasn't a sex scandal of any kind. I wasn't me too. I think it's much more difficult if that's the cause of your defenestration, because then your family is not no longer a kind of safe haven, whereas mine was. So I could kind of retreat back into my, you know, the bosom of my family. So that was that was very psychologically kind of helpful, um, uh, and I got through it. Um, but um, one thing I realised when, when I was going through it is that there was no organisation out there that existed to help people who were going through an experience like that. Someone who could advise you, you know, on whether it would be a good idea to apologise or not, and if you are going to apologise, what should you apologise for? Uh, is it actually going to make stuff kind of stop? Is it going to satisfy the mob? Are they going to move on if you do resign from the job they want you to resign from? Or are they just going to come after you in all your other jobs? You know, um, are there le- any, any kind of legal remedies you should be exploring? Um, you know, there was no uh, where can I turn for psychological counselling? And there was no organisation which kind of provided that kind of service. And that was really the, the kind of um, seed of the idea for the Free Speech Union. Because it's interesting, that entire experience, um, it, it does strike me that there is no one in existence for whom you couldn't trawl through everything they've ever said or written or texted to their friends or whatever and create a case against them to justify a campaign of public shaming. So, And and that's what strikes me as so sort of unjust about the whole thing. I remember at the time that broke, a friend of mine was complaining about some of the tweets you'd sent, I think, uh, relating to women. And I was thinking, I mean, I didn't know you though. I hadn't met you then. And even then I was thinking to myself, well, you've said a lot worse than that to me. You've joked like that to me. I mean, don't you realise the hypocrisy of this? So anyone can be a target. In this world. Yeah, I think it's partly to do with 
a kind of erosion of the boundary between private and public life. Right. Um, with Twitter, you know, b- back in the days when I was kind of bantering about boobs, you know, on Twitter, 2009, 2010, um, Twitter was a kind of different platform then. People used it much more like WhatsApp. It wasn't thought to be a kind of broadcast platform. Well, we didn't have this offense archaeology thing. We didn't have this culture. It wasn't old enough to have a kind of, you know, armies of offense archaeologists trawling through everything you'd said. Yeah. And you didn't really think that it was going to kind of, you'd leave it behind like a kind of permanent trace, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, it, but Twitter in itself became a kind of much more public platform, a much less intimate conversational platform. Uh, People started using it to kind of set out their kind of political Mm. creeds and it became a kind of way of kind of showing your public face to the world. And then, you know, so so in addition to changing, you then had this army of offensive archaeologists forming up. So, so, you know, lots of people have been caught out like that. But I think it's partly because, you know, um, things they thought of as kind of quasi-private, just a part of an intimate kind of bantering exchange with their mates suddenly became kind of something public that you had to stand by or renounce. Which means it's suddenly shorn of context. I mean, I even saw this happen to the Labour activist, Munro Bergdorf, a sort of Labour LGBTQ activist. Uh, and the press went after Bergdorf for all these homophobic slurs. But when I read them, it was quite clear that she was saying to her mates on Twitter uh, and it, it obviously wasn't grounded in homophobia at all. So it can even go for people on the left. Is it like this is something that yeah, the, 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 because we all joke. Yeah, yeah, right? and, and the kind of the, the there's um, the, the willingness to ignore context. The kind of it's the kind of least charitable interpretation of everything. They're like the worst readers you could possibly imagine. You know, um, and, and, and no excuse is considered kind of legitimate. You know, you're just supposed to kind of bow your head in shame and prostrate yourself at the feet of the mob and beg for forgiveness. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. I am... Um, I, I, I read one, one of the pieces I'd written for The Spectator that the archaeologist discovered um, was a piece I'd written in, I think it was like 2001. And it was, it was, it was opposing more censorious anti-pornography laws, which were kind of being debated at the time. And I pointed to the kind of Scandinavian example, you know, more liberal laws there, but fewer sex crimes. So you're not going to have fewer sex crimes. You have more draconian laws here. And, and, and in the course of it, I wrote about um, uh, Philip Larkin, and it, uh, an exchange of letters between Philip Larkin and Kingsley Amis, in which um, Larkin told Kingsley Amis he'd been loitering outside a sex shop in Soho. And the owner came out, saw him in his kind of anorak and said, uh, was it bondage, sir? And as a matter of fact, yes, it was. And I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I referred to Larkin as a fellow porn addict, you know, self-deprecatingly, um, <laughs> not literally um, in this piece. Um, but the sub at the time mischievously put on the top of the article, confessions of a porn addict. And so the offence archaeologist found the headline, someone reproduced it, stuck it on Twitter, and within an hour, the Evening Standard ran with the headline, Theresa May's new university czar confesses to being porn addict. And the Times reproduced (laughs) it almost verbatim the following day, and you're kind of tearing your hair out, thinking the injustice of this. And one of the things... um, Someone else who'd been cancelled, who's uh, a quite a distinguished psychologist, said to me, um, is that um, uh, one thing he discovered when um, uh, counselling Christians who either themselves, devout Christians whose children had died of cancer, um, uh, it really challenged their whole worldview because how can how can how can God be real? You know, I'm a devout Christian. I've always 
um, uh, 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 obeyed all the rules. I go to church every Sunday. Why am I being punished in this way? Is God really, causes a crisis of faith. And he said, for people like us, there's a similar sort of experience, which is you don't realize until you are the victim of this kind of injustice. I mean, I'm not, I'm not claiming to be a kind of massive victim of injustice, but it does feel very unjust when it's happening. You think this is a completely disproportionate punishment for these kind of minor transgressions. Um, uh, why is this happening to me? You know, I've always obeyed the social contract. I've always tried to be a decent guy. I give money to homeless people. If I see a cat wandering around, apparently homeless, I'll kind of try and find its own. You know, I feel like I'm a good guy. So why is all this shit happening to me? But the truth is we don't live in a just universe. Of course, you know, that you may have been a perfectly good person, but karma isn't real, you know, and you only realize that you thought it was. It's called the just world fallacy. And, and it only dawns on you that you were clinging on to the just world fallacy when something like this happens and you and it really brings it home to you that you don't live in a just universe. And you kind of think of yourself as not someone who was laboring that under that illusion in the first place. But when this happens, you realize that you were and now it's been shattered. But it's interesting you mentioned that people are want, willing to interpret things in the least generous way and they tend to do it more often with humour. I mean, you got in trouble because a lot of your tweets were, they were clearly meant to be funny. Yeah. Right? They were clearly jokes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, someone can find them offensive, not funny, whatever. But to assume that they are a literal expression of your viewpoint is a very strange leap. And I, you saw this with Louis C.K. where he made uh, jokes about the Parkland school shootings and the headline in The Independent said something like, uh, Louis C.K. mocks survivors of school shooting. Yeah. And you think, but he clearly isn't doing that. And I think you must know he isn't doing that unless you actually think a joke is a literal expression of truth. Yes. Yes. It, it, this happened recently to Julia Hartley Brewer. She said that um, she had in the past on occasion laughed at rape jokes and she was immediately accused of saying she thought rape is funny. No, it's Which is not the same thing at it's all. It's such a leap. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, so I, what, I, what explains that? Because that's a new, maybe it's not a new development. It just feels like a new development to me. I'm always kind of puzzled as to whether they know you didn't right. mean it in that way. And they're deliberately interpreting it in the least charitable way in order to kind of score a political point. I, is it just a cynical political exercise in kind of smearing your enemies or do they really believe that that's what you meant because they think so poorly of you i can i think maybe they don't quite know either well may i mean i always try and avoid assuming i know what's going on in someone else's mind so i always take people at face value but then sometimes i mean the big example i think is the boris johnson one where he wrote the article referring to pickaninnies with watermelon smiles and this is taken as evidence of his racism yeah. and i myself was guilty i mocked him in a stand-up routine for that and and you know for being racist etc and then i read the article and it was quite clearly a satirical piece mocking colonial attitudes. And that's yeah. why he was using those uh, outdated yeah. colonial terms. Yeah. And when I read that, I thought, OK, well, I can either think he's using humour to disguise what he really wants to say, or I can accept that whatever I think about that joke and the way it was executed, it, it, he is not using those terms in a racist way. And I found it difficult to understand how anyone could interpret it otherwise. But that became the narrative that he casually uses racial slurs. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know what he thinks. I don't know what his private views are. Yeah. But that struck me as a very odd widespread interpretation. One of the one of the gifts that um, the leaders of the outrage mobs claim to possess is to be able to see into your soul. So they're like, you know, witch finded generals of old. Um, they think they possess the gift of seeing in, into 
the very deepest recesses of your psyche and discovering the kind of poison there. You know, so when you accuse someone, you know, Lawrence Fox, you know, when he's accused of racism, um, I, he finds it it's, it's a really difficult uh, uh, charge to rebut um, because, you know, you're talking about an attitude, a set of beliefs, um, uh, and they might be, you know, maybe they can be revealed in some way. But, you know, often, as you say, it's kind of only if you interpret things people say in the least charitable, completely decontextualized way, do you see them as what they've said as evidence of racism. But it's really hard to, to kind of prove the negative I mean, I, because I, it's about your soul and you can't some, really see that or show that. But I'd say there are some very incontrovertible examples of someone saying or doing a racist act. Or so, you know, that, I think racism can be proven when it's, when, it, when it's... But it's this thing of, I'm assuming you're a racist and therefore I'm going to in, in, misinterpret everything you say mm. as, you know, you hear the phrase dog whistle all the time or mm. a, a right-wing talking point. And these are basically... Admissions. We don't have the evidence of what we believe you feel, but we're going to say it anyway. Yeah. You know, that, and that's what troubles me about people. Often assume people who are unfamiliar with the way kind of the woke thought police operate. When a an institution like RADA um, publishes, you know, a statement denouncing racism and denouncing its own past and denouncing the racism within its own ranks and even their own racism and talking about doing better, listening, doing the work. I mean, they all use the same stock phrases, which suggests that it's all groupthink. Um, uh, but you sort of get the impression that, you know, until yesterday, it was a gathering place for the kind of, um, you know, Charing Cross Road branch of the K Ku Klux Klan. You know, I mean, people looking at it must, on the face of it, must think, crikey, you know, what was going on at RADA, that they have to publish a statement like this. But actually, they're not talking about um, people in, in, in a white sheet meeting in the kind of RADA canteen. They're talking about there not being enough kind of portraits of black actors on the wall or the fact that, you know, some of their if you look at their black graduates on average, they're not paid as much as their white graduates. You know, it, it, the, the kind of willingness to see racism everywhere as this kind of invisible toxic force. I mean, and that's the same with unconscious. I mean, th th that's really kind of underlines the fact that you can't find any actual hard, concrete, material evidence of racism or bias or discrimination or prejudice. You know, it doesn't show up in surveys. And if you look at things like kind of um, uh, access to housing, um, average wages, educational achievement, yeah, a little bit, but, but not nearly to the, to the extent that it's kind of the anti-professional, anti-racist claim. So they have to claim it's invisible. You know, um, uh, so they talk about unconscious bias. You may not be aware of it. We may not be able to see it, but by God, it's there. And they attribute to, to statues, you know, statues of slavers, uh, supposedly have these kind of supernatural powers whereby their mere presence in a town square can turn other people racist. It's as though it's this invisible, malignant, supernatural force, almost like something out of a horror film, you know, and it's just kind of batty and bizarre. But I would have thought, though, that given the uh, the potential damage to one's uh, livelihood and reputation, if you are smeared as racist, I mean, it's a very serious charge. Um, and that in of itself is it the fact that their cancel culture tactics work only work because we live in a society in which racism simply is not tolerated. In other words, the, 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 the tactics that they deploy are proof uh, actually disprove their fundamental belief that Britain is essentially racist. So it, it seems odd that they don't see that. I was talking to Douglas Murray about this when we interviewed him. I interviewed him recently for a speakeasy at the Free Speech Union, an online speakeasy. Um, and um, uh, yeah, I, I said it, it, it's odd 
that um, the critics of the West and of Britain and America in particular have honed in on racism as the Achilles heel, um, as though that's going to do more damage to people's confidence in the West than any other allegation. Um, and you know, not only is it kind of um, weak ground on which to attack Britain and America, because, you know, according to most metrics, they're less racist than almost any other places on earth. Um, but in addition, the reaction to the accusation, uh, whereby people haven't dismissed it, um, uh, but have suddenly engaged in this kind of uh, uh, self-flagellation and self-examination and kind of a desire to do penance and do better. You know, the embrace of the anti-racist agenda by the entire kind of elite, the professional elite, the corporate elite. It all suggests that we're not this kind of poisonous, toxic, racist society, but actually a society which is struggling to do good and which is very concerned about being accused of racism. You, you, you accuse, you, you accuse some, someone in Jordan of being racist because they don't want their son or daughter to marry a Christian. You know, they're not going to engage in a kind of, you know, endless self-flagellation, go on a course, you know, go on a kind of unconscious bias training course. They'll laugh in your face. And that's, a, that's because it's a genuinely racist society. So the mere reaction to that allegation has proved that the allegation is false. And yet it does seem to have done the mischief they intended it to do. Now, you mentioned as well with your experience of, of cancellation that the apology was actually a mistake. And uh, this is, I think, something that everyone now accepts, that, to, to, that you feed them more if you, if you apologise. And that is testament, I think, to, to the rapacious nature, the re retributive nature of their, uh, of their behaviour. It feels like a mob that is hungry for blood. Um, yeah. Is that one of the key uh, pieces of advice you would give to people who, who find themselves at the eye of these storms? Or is there yes. other, other things they can do? We certainly advise people. We advise people not to apologise and not to resign, um, but um, uh, to force the institution um, uh, uh, or, or their employer to actually get rid of them, which usually involves going through a kind of quasi-judicial process in which there is some due process. And that's where you can really properly defend them. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the reason, the reason it's generally inadvisable to apologise is partly because um, uh, the people out to get you see that as a sign of weakness. And that just increases their kind of lust for blood, uh, because a lot of it is, is motivated by a kind of sadistic kind of wanting to tear you down impulse. Um, uh, but in addition, there isn't much room for forgiveness in the kind of woke church. I mean, as many people have said, the, the, there's something kind of quasi-religious about the woke cult. And it has quite a lot in common with kind of puritanical strains of Christianity in the past. Um, but one of the things it's kind of left behind is the ability to forgive, distinguishing between the sin and the sinner, creating a pathway back into society if someone is truly repentant and does some kind of penance. People imagine, you know, that because it has certain things in common with kind of puritanical Christian, you know, um, sects, that if you if you prostrate yourself at its feet and if you beg for forgiveness and if you seem genuinely penitent, you will be allowed back in. But no, that, that, that's an illusion. They, they've left that bit behind. They just want to destroy you. And yet there are some exceptions to that, aren't there? I mean, Justin Trudeau seemed to get away with his blackface, which he seemed to do a lot of. Yeah, I, th I think if I think if um, I think if, if 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 you're if you're I mean, if you're in a position of power. Um, uh, and you and, and, and you know you can you can probably help the kind of uh, uh, the high priests of the woke cult in various ways, whether by arranging for them 
for their universities to get grants or by praising their books or by pandering to them in various ways, you've probably just about, you know, got enough credit to survive, you know, an attempt to cancel you for blackface. I think it was also um, you know, attempts by kind of uh, right wing offence archaeologists to cancel kind of left wing kind of uh, icons. Yes. Um, generally not nearly as successful as um, the other way around. I mean, the left, have, the left, are, even though they turn on themselves and are quicker to look for kind of traitors than allies, once they're under attack, they're much better, uh, or once a member of the tribe is under attack, they're much better at circling the wagons yes. than people on the right are. The pe- people on the right generally are much much less quick to find traitors within their own ranks and try and cancel one another. But when one of them is targeted for cancellation by, you know, an angry mob on the other side of the aisle, they tend to just toss them to the wolves. Yeah, I mean, I've I've often been accused of focusing too much on the cancel culture of the left. But the reason I do that is because it's far more prominent. It just is. But I would say there are some examples of there are right-wing, some. Yeah. right-wing people, yeah. uh, you know, uh, taking a joke uh, at face value, trying to attack. And, and yeah, that still does happen. It does. But yeah. it is so overwhelmingly weighted on the on the left. It seems much more a problem of the left in a way that I would say when I was growing up, it was more a problem of the right. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, that creates a difficulty for people like you and I who want to defend the principle of free speech. You know, we're constantly having to contend with people claiming that we don't really believe in free speech. We just want to create a safe space for kind of Pale, male pale and stale conservatives to mm-hmm. kind of spout their kind of racist crap. Um, and, and, you know, y- you want to say, no, um, actually, free speech is as important or should be as important to people on the left as it is to people on the right. Yeah. We need to we need to all be able to speak our minds and engage in a free exchange of ideas without having to look over our shoulders and worry about losing our livelihoods. And it really should be as important to you as it is to me. But it's quite hard to persuade them that it isn't it isn't kind of a covert partisan agenda and you're not actually a culture warrior, given that 90% of the people you end up defending are on the right. And that's just because the left at the moment, much more intolerant than the right. It's tricky. I mean, a lot of the times when I discuss sort of these free speech stories on my show, um, it's it's quite an easy uh, thing to do because I, I effectively I'm saying, look, this is a joke that's been misinterpreted. It's a, a flippant remark that's been misunderstood, etc. Sometimes there is someone who has said something genuinely racist, genuinely appalling. Yeah. And I still believe they should have the right to say it, even though I disapprove of it. Um, do you find that that's a struggle with the free speech? Union? Have you ever had people come to you for defence who, who are just racist? Uh, once or twice, yes. Um, and um, we have a statement of values. And um, uh, we draw the line in, I'd say, three places. So we don't tend to defend behaviour which is unlawful. Right. I mean, you know, we can campaign to change the law. And we certainly spend a lot of time doing that. And we spend a lot of time campaigning to make sure the law doesn't become even more restrictive of yes. what people can say. And, you know, got to work it out there. Our other, uh, uh, another thing we won't defend is uh, incitements to violence, where, 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 where it's clearly an attempt to rile people up and get them to physically attack other people, where speech leads directly and imminently to violence, then I don't think you can defend it. And the third area is we say, if, if you're using your right to free speech to try and bully and intimidate someone else from exercising theirs, and that includes calling them a racist, uh, sorry, that includes saying racist things about them, even if what you've said doesn't cross the threshold into criminality, uh, then we won't, we won't defend you. Right. But the problem with the criminality aspect of that is, for instance, the Count Dankula case. You have a man who has a criminal record now for a joke. And I believe that the law is wrong there. 
and and he shouldn't have a, have been prosecuted. No, I, I think that's right. But I think um, uh, I think and I think I think you know it wasn't it wasn't where well, it's not a completely open and shut case. Um, and I don't think it was in his case. Um, uh, then, of course, we would defend someone who's being prosecuted for, you know, making an inappropriate joke. Mm. Um, but where they've clearly done something unlawful and it's an unwinnable case, even if the law is an ass, um, we're not going to waste our time, you know, and our resources defending them because it, it's a hiding to nothing. We'll, we'll instead campaign to change the law if we think that law is stupid. I mean, at the moment, I think the it's the Communications Act, Section 127 of the Communications Act, which is a lot of people are falling afoul of, you know, uh, because it's if you transmit or if you post anything online that could be deemed to be grossly offensive. Now, that strikes me as such a sub- hopelessly subjective idea, mm-hmm. but there doesn't seem to be any appetite within the government or anywhere else to, to see this change. Well, um, there is, but it's 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 quite complicated. So, um, buried in the online safety bill um, is a new harmful communications offence, um, and that is going to replace various existing communications offences, like I think Section One Two Seven. It tries to um, identify those things you shouldn't be able to say, not by using terms like grossly offensive, which, as you say, are very nebulous and open-ended. They, they try and identify them according to the effect they have on the person they're sent to or who overhears them. So under the new harmful communications offence buried in the online safety bill, um, if you say something which is um, going to cause someone extreme psychological distress and you intended it to do so, and you don't have a kind of reasonable reason for doing so, like you're not participating in a political debate. If it's a gratuitous, uh, something you said, it's gratuitous, it was designed to cause psychological distress, and it causes extreme psychological distress, then you can go to jail for two years. Nadine Dorries argues that this law, um, whilst it does restrict some speech, and whilst it could be, a bit, I mean, she doesn't acknowledge this, but we pointed out this could be abused in the courts because lots of people yeah. will claim that, that you know, a gender-critical feminist misgendering them on Twitter has caused them extreme psychological distress and the person doing it knew it would and they should go to jail for two years. And you can see this could be used as a kind of Trojan horse for kind of smuggling subjective definitions of harm, psychological harm into the criminal justice system in a kind of, you know, sinister way. But she says um, um, the argument is that it's more permissive than the restrictions embedded in the other communications laws that it's replacing. Um, Now, that's all well and good. But um, uh, online, um, it looks as though this new online communications, this new um, uh, harmful communications offence will be additive rather than um, uh, a substitution. So, so we we'll still so, have... So, so, so when, it, when, when Ofcom is tasked, when the online safety bill becomes law, um, with enforcing the law and threatening social media companies with fining them 10% of their annual global turnover unless they remove it, you know, pronto, yeah. um, uh, uh, they not only will ask social media companies to remove stuff which breaches this new harmful communications offence, but also... Section 127 of the Communications Act, because that will still be on the statute books in Scotland 
and Northern Ireland because the new Harmful Communications Act will only replace those laws in England and Wales. So effectively, what it is doing, at least when it comes to online speech, is adding another layer of restrictions, not replacing one layer with a, with a more permissive alternative. Um, uh, and I, 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 I hope that um, uh, the government uh, will address this. I mean, the, the particular worry is that it works in both directions. So the Scottish Hate Crime and Public Order Scotland Act, which is, um, you know, the most draconian assault on free speech probably in our lifetimes in the British Isles. Um, it hasn't been activated yet, but once it's activated, it looks as though Ofcom would also have to enforce that online across the United Kingdom. Right. So this all strikes me as a big mess. And, you know, th- th- this idea that, I mean, you mentioned the, 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 the addition of the harmful communications element to the online safety bill. But, it, you know, your concern is not um, something that's theoretical. It's already happening. Activists now routinely talk about how they have been erased. Uh, they have been uh, violence has been committed against them, psychological harm because of being misgendered or because of what uh, gender critical feminists have to say. And they are already saying and they intended to do so. They want yeah. to wipe us out. They want to commit a genocide against us. Right. So yeah. all of this is already being claimed, not just on the margins, quite routinely. Yeah. So if Nadine Doris just familiarizes herself with this discourse, she'll understand the, the fundamental flaw at the heart of this proposition. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is the the essence of, I think, the government's naivety when it comes to the online safety bill. They haven't grasped that um, psychological harm has been weaponized as a concept by the woke left to shut down any dissent, to shut down anyone they disagree with. And, you know, the Free Speech Union is often engaged in trying to defend particularly gender critical feminists on campus who've been no platformed because trans rights activists claim that to allow them to speak would erase trans people. It would, it, would, it would make them feel unsafe. It might prompt them to self-harm or worse, commit suicide. Um, uh, and that, that, that concept of harm um, is, is, is um, you know, it, it, it's like elastic. Um, it's been stretched to breaking point in order to censor speech in all kinds of areas of yes. our society, not just university campuses. And the government are going to be turbocharging that's you it. know, that particular movement by passing this bill. And they haven't realised that. They haven't realised they'll be handing this kind of extraordinarily powerful weapons to their most embittered enemies. So this is, uh, I suppose, a broader question I, w- I have to ask is because when I hear these overtures from the Tory party about fighting a war on woke, and I just think, you know, well, the civil service is now completely infected with this ideology. All of the quangos seem to be, the College of Policing certainly, uh, and this all happened under, Tory, under the Tory reign. Uh, it strikes me that they don't actually understand the issues, really. Am I wrong about that? No, I think that's. I think that's. I think that's right. Um, uh, I think they. I think to a certain extent they kind of exist in a Westminster bubble, and they think that um, the online safety bill will make it less likely that they'll be called scum on Twitter, and that's why they okay. like it. They don't realise the kind of broader implications. And I think that it's beginning to dawn on them because they have kind of, you know, at least ministers who have daily contact with civil servants that, you know, um, Whitehall has been completely captured by this cult. I think it's beginning to dawn on them that the higher education sector has been captured. And they must know that a lot of the institutions the um, Arts Council England is funding have been completely captured. Um, uh, I mean, I think, I, think, I, think, I think the penny is beginning to drop. Is it and it has happened on their watch, that's for sure. I, I mean, it, 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 what, it, what it tells us, I think, Andrew, is that um, 
uh, is that um, winning the political battle is, 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 you know, only 10 percent of what yes. you need to do. You know, the culture war is very different. And you, you can you can win an 80 seat majority. The country can vote to leave the European Union. You know, England can express itself as fundamentally Tory and tacking right on these kind of critical social issues. But culturally, it makes no impact at all. The BBC ignore that. Uh, the mainstream media ignore that. Universities ignore it. And, and, and the, the long march through the institutions just continues completely obliviously. And they, I think they believe that, you know, um, uh, that, that the public will eventually come around to their point of view. We're on the right side of history. They're currently on the wrong side of history. But when history has kind of done its work, they'll be on our side, too. It's like kind of campaigning for gay rights 25 years ago. People might not realise how important trans rights are now and why we should all be using our gender pronouns in our email signatures and why we should be teaching five year olds this stuff in, you know, uh, drag queen story time. But in 10 years time, Everyone will be on our side. And it doesn't seem to strike them that they could be on the wrong side of history here, you know. But that, that to me... Well, there is, is no history. That's the right. absurdity you can't, you can't it? It's like, it's like you, yeah. what are you talking to? You're invoking some kind of ghost to say, you know, that there's this kind of, you know, it's like, it's like people who invoke the zeitgeist. It's a kind of, again, it's this kind of faith in a kind of supernatural being, in their case, history, that, yeah. that, that is kind of aligned with them. So yeah. they're going to win. It's like, history is what we make it. It's not predetermined. Exactly. But, that's, but that is the point. We can't vote this out. It doesn't matter if Labour were in or Tories are in. Uh, we can't get rid of this. The, 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 if the machinery of government is, is infected with this stuff, the civil service, the quangos, we can't do anything about it. So, so I mean, to give us a very specific example, I, mean, I know you've done a lot of work against uh, this concept of non-crime hate incidents that are being promoted by the College of Policing. That the College of Policing, from what I can understand, introduced this uh, arbitrarily by themselves without, you know, and, and they won't let it go. But this is my question. It's in Pretty Patel in April last year instructed them to stop doing it. And they've ignored her, right? So if they're ignoring the Home Secretary, right? If they're ignoring the Court of Appeal, which says it's unlawful. Yeah. If the police are just ignoring the law... What, what hope is I mean, it, it, I find myself constantly arguing with conspiracy theorists who talk about the deep state and say that, you know, it doesn't matter who's in office, what the courts say. There is this kind of sinister elite that just kind of decide what the law is going to be and then they enforce it. And it's really hard to argue with people when the College of Policing and the police more widely, as you say, ignore the wishes of the Home Secretary, um, ignore the High Court decision, the Court of Appeal decision, which went against them, um, and just carry on regardless. I mean, the but College of Policing have said they're going to tweak their guidance oh, to I make mean, sure it's lawful, it, they? but they haven't done that yet. And that we've got no reason to think that police forces across England and Wales aren't still recording non-crime hate incidents. I mean, we calculate that since 2014, in England and Wales alone, about a quarter of a million non-crime hate incidents have been recorded, which is uh, which is more than 67 a day. And this in a period when the rate at which the police are solving crimes, particularly crimes like burglary and auto theft, um, have just been dramatically declining. And you think, why are you spending your time policing our tweets and not our streets? It's just absolutely bizarre. There's no public will for you to do this. The police force is just discrediting itself. You know, the police take an oath when they join the police force to enforce the law without fear or favour. How can you do that? How can you plausibly be above the political fray and enjoy everyone's confidence, regardless of their political views, if you take up these incredibly politically contentious 
positions all the time, whether it's wrapping themselves in rainbow flags, driving around in cars saying being offensive is an offence, publishing a kind of anti-racism kind of uh, manifesto, which has clearly been written by kind of critical race theory fanatics. I mean, it's as though they've been completely captured by this hard left cult, and yet they still claim to be kind of above the political fray. I mean, it's, 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 I think in the police force in particular, it's like they're behaving like the paramilitary wing of the Guardian. You know, it, 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 I think it really is undermining people's confidence in the police. No, definitely. But what, what, is it not just a weakness at the heart of government? Why is it? I mean, maybe it's my naivety. Why can't the, uh, why can't Priti Patel simply shut down the College of Policing? Well, I think, I th- uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, who is uh, not only um, the Minister for Brexit Opportunities, but also Government Efficiency, has announced that he wants to have a bonfire of the Quangos. I've heard that for a, years. A, a phrase we've heard before. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, y- y- I think very few more Quangos were created than were set fire to last time we had a bonfire of the Quangos. But nonetheless, uh, Jacob has said he wants to have another bonfire of the Quangos. And I wrote a piece in the Spectre saying, please, please, Jacob, put the College of Policing on the bonfire, get out the kerosene and the matches. You know, this is one of the most pernicious, sinister institutions in our country, making up laws that the police are then busily enforcing instead of actually protecting people from being burgled and mugged. Um, uh, let's hope that, but I, I don't hold that too much hope. Why not? I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, I think it's 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 partly a misunderstanding of where power lies. You think the Home Secretary's this kind of all-powerful figure, but actually she's kind of hemmed in by civil servants. Uh, she has to kind of if she do, did something like scrap the College of Policing, she'd probably have to get the consent of the cabinet. Um, the person who's the chair of the College of Policing, Nick Herbert, was famously, I think, the first gay minister. So it would be presented as kind of an anti-gay thing to do. And it right. might a- antagonise the kind of Tory gay vote, small though that is, you know. I mean, there is a kind of, you know, an LGBTQ plus lobby within the Conservative Party, including within the Parliamentary Conservative right. Party. You know, we saw that with, with Crispin Watts's vote. But that's the, um, same, that's the same problem with Stonewall, isn't it? Because, you know, Stonewall is so patently ideological. I and uh, many, many gay people perceive Stonewall to be the biggest threat to gay rights that currently exist in this country. But whenever people criticise it, it's presented as an anti-gay mm. attack, right? So that might be part of the problem here. I mean, Stonewall will be another example of, I think Stonewall should be nowhere near uh, government. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, what it comes down to is that where power lies is not objectively measurable. Um, it's all to do with, it's very subjective. It's to do with perception. Um, you know, it lies where people think it lies. And that's why, you know, Boris has suffered so much from not having won the confidence vote very convincingly. You can see power ebbing away from him, even though he won. And that's because the perception of him as a powerful figure has been altered by this kind of setback. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the because because the woke left are so culturally dominant, people imagine that that's where power lies, that the College of Policing has more power than Preeti Patel, the Home Secretary, because that's the perception, because it's sort of with the grain of the culture. It's on the right side of history. It's amazing how effective those arguments are. And that's, I think, one of the things that that the woke have really understood how to um, uh, advance their cause. It's to give the impression that they are with the zeitgeist. History is on their side. This is the direction of travel. And that helps them maintain, I mean, that helps them exercise power. It's the same you see it on Twitter. You know, uh, of course, you know, most people, um, uh, uh, if they thought about it, would stand up for someone who's targeted for cancellation by a kind of intolerant Maoist mob. But they think the power lies with the kind of 
vociferous, morally certain minority and don't want to challenge it, even though they're far more numerous. Yeah. And when you stand up to um, these activists, they tend to crumble. Like they're actually not if you actually take that step. That's one of the um, uh, things we've discovered at the Free Speech Union. Yeah. Um, And I've been pleasantly surprised by Um, if you stand up to a mob, if you stand firm, if you don't immediately capitulate to their demands, they quite quickly disperse and go on to attack somewhere else. Because there are not many of them. But there aren't that many of them. And they're constantly probing for weakness. So any show of strength, they immediately disperse and go somewhere else. Yeah. So isn't that the message that we should be trying to get (laughs) out there? You know, just don't. But there's an odd alliance now between between the sort of woke activists and, and say, for instance, the sort of ultra conservative uh, Islamist contingent. It, we saw this with this film this week, uh, yeah. The Lady of Heaven. Uh, and the, the video footage of the, the mob outside the cinema, the, the, the article I read claimed there were 200 men there, and it was all men, um, uh, chanting Allahu Akbar and, and this this obviously terrified cinema manager coming out and saying, yes, we've we, we cancelled the film, it won't be shown. And we, we were, I share your concerns. We should never have put it on. This, this, you know, I, I feel for him, by the way. I'm not, I'm not yeah, trying to have it's hard a go. to condemn him. Um, but but the mob rule, it's intimidation. It's intimidatory tactics that mm. se- seem to prevail mm. when it comes to free speech issues. Mm. What do we do about that kind of thing where there's, a, where there's even potentially a physical threat? Well, the, the, the irony, Andrew, is that... Um, when these mobs do turn on an apostate, um, uh, often the apostate is, or the heretic, is accused of being hateful, yes, um, of being of not being very nice, being kind of inconsiderate and selfish. You know, not a good person. Um, and often the people in the mob have be kind. You know, in their Twitter bios. <laughs> But the way they behave, I mean, it couldn't be more kind of hate-filled and kind of vituperative and nasty. And yet they persuaded themselves that they're the good guys. And you could see that in that mob assault on the Cineworld Cinema in, where was it, Birmingham? Yeah. Was it Sheffield? Oh, Bolton, I think. It was absolutely outrageous and um, a disgraceful episode. And it's pathetic the way Cineworld and now other... Uh, cinema chains have withdrawn the film from um, exhibition. Uh, and it, was, it, it, it exactly kind of echoes the um, attempt to ban The Life of Brian, you know, yeah. in 1979, um, uh, uh, which was sort of semi-successful back then as well. Uh, Who to blame, though? You know, it's partly, you know, a cultural problem. Um, uh, it's partly kind of, um, you know, the, the, the kind of community leaders um, who've whipped up these mobs um, within kind of Shia communities. Um, but um, it, it, you sort of think, well, where were the police in that? You know, everyone knew about that protest. It was advertised on Twitter. You know, the police can't have been unaware of it. And if you look at that video you just referred to, there isn't a police officer inside. No, they just, they're just that guy's just been thrown to the wolves, effectively. The police should be outside cinemas defending the right of these cinemas to see the film and the right of anyone who wants to see the film to go and see the film. And if they did that, and if the cinemas stood firm, knowing that the police would protect them from these angry mobs, the mobs would soon go away. Well, I mean, I would support uh, their right to protest. I really would. It, you know, I, the, the right for ultra conservatives to protest their 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 reactionary religious beliefs. I have no problem with that. But why why can't we as a culture sort of say no? We're not going along with this. Sorry, this is not the way we do things here. We believe in free speech. Yeah, why, I mean it's, it has to be a, a collective will. Absolutely. It? Yeah. It, it, it's it's. I think it's it, the reason the free speech union is so necessary is that people have forgotten why free speech is important and they've forgotten how important it is to defend it. They just think it's going to be with us. You mm. know? It's part of the furniture. It doesn't need to be robustly defended. Um, uh, but actually, it turns out that if you stop defending it, if you just start taking it for granted, 
it begins to disappear very quickly. Are there any particular cases? Because one thing that strikes me about the Free Speech Union is I assume we don't hear about all of the successes, you know, because a lot of people probably don't want to be in the limelight. Part of this has come about because they have been thrown in the limelight and they're just ordinary people who want to be able to get on with their lives. Are there any particular cases that you think you're particularly proud of or that might make affect a cultural shift? Well, um, we had a a victory last week. Um, uh, We had, um, I don't know if there was a double no platforming incident within a few weeks of each other at Essex University, end of 2019, beginning of 2020, in which these two gender critical law professors, Joe Phoenix and Rosa Friedman, were both no platformed in very quick succession because trans rights activists on campus claimed that allowing them to speak was a breach of the campus anti-harassment policy. Yeah. Because trans students and members of staff would feel unsafe and well, under weaponization again of again those, weaponization those, of yeah. psychological fragility yeah um and um the authorities quickly capitulated to the demands of the trans rights activists yes to allow them to say these gender critical things on campus would be hate speech no place for hate speech on essex we have to protect our vulnerable trans students even though you know there are probably only two or something there um uh, anyway so so we went to the, the, the essex was widely criticized for this it appointed um, a prominent equalities barrister, Akua Reindorf, um, to um, uh, do a review of what had happened of its policies to see if they were interpreted correctly by these outrage mobs and did actually prohibit gender critical feminists speaking on campus. And um, Reindorf concluded that it was partly because Essex was a Stonewall, a member of the Stonewall Diversity Champions Programme, that it had it had um, implemented Stonewall's interpretation of how it would like the law to be rather than the law as it is. And they completely overreached and even though the Equality Act 2010 does create a duty on public sector institutions like universities um, uh, to protect vulnerable, protected, characteristic, bearing members of their community from harassment, that doesn't include protecting them from hearing arguments they may find disagreeable. Um, uh, and and, and um, Essex said thank you, and she made 28 recommendations, and Essex agreed to amend their policies accordingly, and they didn't really do it. Um, And incidentally, they issued an apology to Rosa Friedman and Joe Phoenix for this double no platforming. And then the trans activists got up on their high horse again and said, you issued this apology in Pride Week. Do you know how unsafe that makes us feel? People are self-harming because you've apologised to these dreadful, hate-spouting, gender critical Nazis. And so they then apologised for having apologised. It was a kind of, you know, they rescinded their apology almost. It was absolutely absurd. I mean, the gelatinous kind of uh, backbone of the vice chancellor is something to behold. But anyway, um, we then discovered that they weren't actually implementing all these recommendations that had been made. The policies weren't being changed, not nearly quickly enough. They were really dragging their feet. So we threatened them with a judicial review if they didn't do what they'd agreed to do, yeah. you know, um, uh, before they'd issued the apology for apologising. And um, and, they, and they, they sort of initially came back after we wrote this letter saying, unless you do this, we will JR you, saying, well, we think we should do this perhaps and we will do that. But we think you're wrong about that. Um, And then so we wrote back again and on and on it went. And eventually they more or less capitulated to everything we asked them to do. And they've now revised their policies to bring them in line with the law and to properly state what the Equality Act actually demands of them. And we're now going to ask other universities to do the same, because believe me, it isn't just Essex who are interpreting the law as Stonewall would like it to be rather than it really is. Yeah, but this is why the Free Speech Union, I think, is so necessary, because they they don't go down without a fight. You have to push them. Oh, it's it's, and it is unbelievable. Hard. It's through the courts, isn't it, ultimately? Well, it, it, we found that um, threatening people with court action, you know, 
going to law, that's the most effective weapon. That really makes them sit up and pay attention. Um, and if you think, if, they, if you can persuade them that they're on the wrong side of the law and they're likely to lose, yes. uh, or even if they don't lose, it's going to cost them a lot of money to win, then they'll cap- often capitulate. Because the example, I mean, Joe Phoenix was on my podcast and, you know, just meeting her and talking to her at length, you know, she's obviously such a, a wonderful human being, a, a genuinely good person with good intentions, left wing, uh, supportive of, of rights for everyone. Yeah. Um, for her then to be characterized as a hate figure, a folk devil, and when these people who are sending threats and all sorts of things to her, leaving her with PTSD, it's very clear on an objective standpoint who's the victim here and who is the aggressor. Yeah. And I don't understand why figures of authority can't see it as plainly as it is. No, it is, it, it's, it's extraordinary. It's as though they're blinded by their kind of identitarian nostrums yeah. um, from what's plain to anyone with an ounce of common sense. So should people be joining the Free Speech Union uh, sort of preemptively on the assumption that this could happen to them? Well, I think they should. I mean, I think um, initially I thought that um, most people were joining. We have now, we have over 9,000 members now um, because they just supported the cause. Yeah. Not because they thought they were personally at risk of being cancelled. But actually, increasingly, the people we end up defending are ordinary people, not kind of prominent people, not people who think of themselves as being in the political front line or as culture warriors. I mean, there was a a very recent case, a typical example, um, uh, uh, a train conductor um, called Simon Isherwood. Um, uh, He was um, uh, doing an online uh, anti-racism training uh, for, I think, organised by West Midlands Train, his in, trains, his employer. And, um, and, and it was the usual kind of critical race theory informed kind of baloney. And at the conclusion of it, he thought that he'd, 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 he'd ended the call, but actually he'd left the call on. And he said to turn to his wife and said, well, that was a load of balls, wasn't it? And then he said, um, white privilege. What is white? Do you think they have black privilege in majority African countries like Ghana? It's ridiculous. And, um, you know, perfectly, I mean, he was just, you know, bantering with his wife and kind of venting because he'd had to kind of, you know, he wasn't able to say anything he really thought, you know, during this kind of ideological bombardment. He just had to endure this re-education. And and, uh, various people who could hear it because he hadn't exited the call then complained, said that what he'd said was offensive and racist. And he was put through it wasn't no. <laughs> no. it was put through a process fired for gross misconduct and we've managed to uh, raise some money we're taking his case to the employment tribunal and we hope to get a judgment of unfair dismissal and a significant award and you know we've won a few cases like that but it's ordinary people who don't imagine that they're at risk of cancellation who are these days the vast majority of the people we help are ordinary people doing ordinary jobs like that not people like Kathleen Stock or Joe Phoenix or Rosa Friedman. That's strange because the I keep reading in the Guardian that uh, cancel culture is just holding the powerful to account from the sound of things it's not really that it's the powerful persecuting the powerless for the most part toby young thank you very much thank you